Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13 in just a moment. We continue our study on the Master's plan for disciple-making. Today we're going to focus in as Jesus has invited his disciples into this phase of come and see in John chapter 2. Maybe you've done the same thing that we've done as a family, saved up our money, made a trip to SeaWorld, excited to be there to see Shamu, and you get inside and uh, you find out that a Coke is going to cost you, I don't know, $10, I don't know what it is now, and you buy a hamburger and, and it's like you bought a steak dinner, and, and you go and you go through the, the event of the day and it's all exciting and you leave after having seen all these great shows and seen Shamu and all you can think about is... They charged me 10 bucks for a Coke. Well, the disciples are with Jesus in this passage of Scripture, and they find themselves at one of those places. They're making this pilgrimage, an annual pilgrimage, to the the temple. And there on the Temple Mount is this magnificent structure that is being built. It's taken over 40 years to refurbish this temple and make it the pinnacle of Judaism. And And these disciples travel with Jesus with so many others to have this incredible worship experience at the temple, and they're met with much like my experience at SeaWorld. Let's look at verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, He drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Let's just pause right there before we go any further in this passage. Jesus leads his disciples there. This is the first of several Passover celebrations that Jesus would experience there with his disciples, the last one being right before his crucifixion. But this first time as he takes them there, they're along for the ride. They're, they're, they have come into, into his fold to, to watch and to see and to learn. And Jesus takes them there, and this experience was uh, every male Jew had to make a pilgrimage at least once in their life to the temple at, at Passover. So this is one of those events where Jesus takes his disciples and, and discovers not exactly what they probably had expected to find. <clears throat> What they discover is all around the temple complex, there's a a walled-in area called the Court of the Gentiles. It it surrounded the temple. And in that court, it was designed to be a place where the Gentiles could come and hear about the good news of God through the Jews, that the Jews could point those Gentiles to God. So it was designed to be a place of gathering, to be a place of pointing people to God. Well, they show up and find out that it's full of people the religious leaders, the priests and those people in charge of the temple, selling oxen, sheep, doves, and, and also doing money changing there. Now, when a person came to worship at the temple at Passover, they would bring a, an animal, a sacrificial animal, usually a lamb. If you were too poor, it would be doves, 
That's what a poor person brought. Some would bring for different offerings uh, a bull. So these people would come to worship with their animal at Passover. And that animal, before it could be offered, had to be approved by the priest as being an animal that's worthy of sacrifice. An animal without any defects, not lame or anything like that or uh, anything that would hinder that animal from being a perfect sacrifice, at least perfect, perfect in their eyes. So a, a person would get their lamb and show up at the temple ready to, to say, here's my, my, the lamb that our family offers to be the sacrifice, to be the picture of the atoning sacrifice that the lamb of God one day will bring. By the way, Jesus was the lamb of God. He was there this time. And they would present their lamb before the priest, and the priest had a, a panel, and they would study that animal, and they would say, this animal is approved of sacrifice but more than that they would say this animal is not approved go get another animal or go prove yourself with a a, 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 come next year with another animal so the the best way for them to do it was to say you know what instead of us judging your animal why don't you just show up and we'll we'll sell you an animal that we've already pre-approved that's basically what they were doing so a person would show up at the temple having made this pilgrimage, having saved up their money to make the trip, and they would step up there to the court uh, in, of the Gentiles there around the temple and say, we're here to, to purchase a sacrificial lamb for our family. And they would pay the money, and the priest would, I don't know exactly how it would happen, but basically say, here's the lamb, and they would hand the lamb right back. Because basically, they were offering the lamb as a sacrifice. So what it ended up doing was the people showing up and paying to worship God. And some have taken this where Jesus cast the money changers out of the the temple court here and said we should never do any financial transactions in church, that we shouldn't sell tickets to anything in the foyer or anything like that. I like like what one scholar said the the best analogy for us today would be if we were to sell uh, the wafers or the, the, the crackers for the Lord's Supper when you come to partake of communion. Can you imagine that walking down the aisle and the pastor saying, are you ready? Yes, I prepared my heart. Okay, that'll be $1.50. or whatever the going rate is for a wafer. That, that's really what was happening here. By the way, this is the first of two times Jesus cast the money changers out of the temple. And not only that, as they were changing the money, they charged interest for the people. I know when we've made our mission trips, one of the first things they tell you to do is when you get to the airport, Thailand's the only uh, faraway country I've been to, when you get to the Bangkok airport, you go straight to the, to the currency exchange. And there's a big sign there, currency exchange, and you go and you change your your American dollars into bot. And then when you come back, you do the same thing, you reverse it. And there's a fee that's in there. I don't know what it is because I can't count bot. But some of, they took some of my bot when I turned it back in. But that's what you do. Well, that's what they were doing there. When you would come to worship with an offering, or possibly even if you were to buy the sacrificial animal, you had to have the special Jewish coinage. So if I showed up from another part of the country as a Jew, and I've got my Thai bot with me, if that would have happened, just work with me, okay? They would say, Kevin, that Thai money is not any good here at the temple. You have to have Jewish money. So I'd give them my bot, and they would give me Jewish money and take a little bit for themselves. They were actually taking advantage of the people as they came to worship God. That's why Jesus is so upset here. That's why Jesus gives them a glimpse into his, glimpse into his righteous indignation for what they've done. So we got the scene set, right? That's what took place. Look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They connected what happened there, Jesus' zeal with the Old Testament scripture. 
So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Someone commented, it's interesting that nobody stopped him from doing that. It's as if everybody there knew what's going on is wrong. This, this temple is supposed to be a place of worship, not a place where we take advantage of pilgrims, not a place where we, where we uh, change money and hold some back, not a, a place where we make it difficult. This is supposed to be a place of worship. So Jesus, so nobody stopped him from changing things, but they do ask this question. What committee authorized this, Jesus? He doesn't really say that, but by what sign of authority do you have? That's what they're asking. These religious people are saying, well, Jesus, maybe what happened really needed to happen, but, but who authorized you to do that? And I love Jesus' response. This is a part of his strategy. Verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he raised, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. In other words, verse 22 tells us they didn't connect the dots till three years later. When Jesus said, destroy this sanctuary, it'll raise up in three days. Everybody there thought he was talking about the actual physical temple, but he was really talking about his sanctuary of his body. Now let's look at some truths here today, unmasking the counterfeit. First of all, I just wanna point out what, what in this passage illustrates two of the big areas that the enemy, Satan, uses to thwart the purposes of God and kingdom work. So let's recognize Satan's counterfeit, number one. Recognize Satan's counterfeit. Jesus is letting them know before they make this commitment to follow him, he's letting them see what happens if you don't do it right. He's letting them see what happens when you let religion for the sake of religion take over. When you let greed and spiritual pride get in the midst. Satan's counterfeit. And the first one is this, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Basically, that's putting on a facade of spirituality when there's no spirituality there. See, the priests were saying, we're doing the people a favor. We're making it easy for them to exchange their money here. We're making it easy for them to come and bring a sacrificial animal for this special time of, of worship. We're, we're helping the people worship. That's what it looked like on the outside. That was all just a facade. That was all fake. That was hypocrisy. Deep down inside, they saw this opportunity to make, as an opportunity to make some money. If you believe what the historians have said, Jerusalem at around Passover, the population swelled to over a million people, and there were hundreds of thousands of sacrificial animals being sacrificed at the temple. And those religious leaders, the priests and others, saw dollar signs, whatever Hebrew sign is for money. They, they saw money. They said, look at all these people showing up. We can charge them $10 for a Coke. They're coming to see the temple. They're coming to make this one-time thing. We've, we've, got them. They, we've got them right where we want them. That's hypocrisy. Say, boy, pastor, let them have it. Those Pharisees and those religious leaders, shame on them. You know why Jesus walked his disciples through this? So they'd have their spiritual radar on so that they wouldn't fall into that same trap of hypocrisy. How many times have you heard the church is full of hypocrites? I hear that all the time. 
I tell them, no, it isn't. There's some empty seats. We got room for one more. Come on. Hypocrisy. This is a danger in the Christian life of us going through the motions, of us knowing how to do it so well that we can go on autopilot. Preachers get that way. You do this long enough and you can just do it. You just do it. Maybe it's that way at your job. You just go on autopilot. You teach Sunday school, connection class long enough. You lead a small group long enough. You minister to people. You love on people in a certain way. You just kind of go into autopilot and you don't even think about it. And it becomes spiritual hypocrisy. That's where those religious leaders were. Norman Vincent Peale tells a story about when he was a kid smoking a cigar out behind the barn wherever he was and his dad came around and he puts the cigar away and tries to get the smoke out of the way and and to distract his father, he starts asking his father if he can go to the circus or something. You know, I don't know what it was. And, And his dad says, son, never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide smoldering disobedience. How often do we come before God and say, God, I need, I want, I need, I want, I need, I want. And God says, you know what? There's some things in your life that aren't right. Why, why do you keep coming to me pretending like you're spiritually okay when you're just really putting on a facade and pretending? Would it not be a scary thing if we all walked in here every Sunday morning with a sign on our head of all the unconfessed sin and all the disobedience that we're bringing in here? Or maybe another list of all the things God has been laying on our heart to do and we've said, not right now, God, maybe later. Or all the challenges God has called us to respond to and we've said, I, I've got some other things to take care of. We have to guard against that spiritual hypocrisy of that smoldering disobedience. Satan loves that. Did you know that? He would love nothing more than for us all to pretend like we're okay. For all us to look spiritual to carry a big Bible and say all the Christianese words. I need to move on. Letter B. Here's another subtle form of counterfeit. Substituting the mechanics of ministry for the ministry itself. Substituting the mechanics of ministry for the ministry itself. This is, this is activity versus ministry. This is church work versus kingdom work. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, We need to be organized. We need to have committees in place. We need to have policies. We need to have procedures. We need to have an order, some structure with leadership. If it didn't, we'd have chaos. So all of that is important. But when all of that becomes more important than the kingdom, then we've got a problem. When the mechanics of doing church become more important than the purpose of the church. That's where they were. That's where the religious leaders were. It was all about what they had to do to get to the place of worship so that they could be ready to do whatever God had called them to do. And it got in the way of what God was calling them to do. Here's a challenge. As you walk with Christ, be careful that you don't let that ministry become mechanical. That walk with Christ become something that's not genuine and real and from the heart. The caution for our church all the time, we talk about it all the time, is to keep our focus on the main thing. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes the main thing 
Satan tries to make the main thing about something minor. Whether it's the color of the carpet or the temperature in the building or whatever. He loves us to get focused on those things. The main thing is he's called us to be a, a, a visionary, visionary, message-sending body of believers to reach the world. I love the parable of the guy that went to the hospital and he got there and there were two doors and two signs and one sign said, over this first door, the first sign said emergency, the other said non-emergency. So he evaluated, I guess I'm non-emergency. He goes through that door, he walks down a hall and there's two more doors and two more signs. And one sign says pain insurance and pain cash. Look, I'm cash. He goes through the cash door, he works his way down the hall and he finds a, a, a sign that says, seen by a doctor, seen by a nurse. So he, he makes this evaluation and gets to the end. And comes, there's another uh, doorway and he goes through. It was the exit. And he walks out and, and he goes home. And his wife says, well, did you get any help at the hospital? He says, no, I didn't. But man, they sure are organized there. Again, we want to be organized. We want to be efficient. But we want to be effective more than anything. Okay, that was for us as we walk through this process of being an empowered body of believers to reach the, the, gloss with the gospel of Christ. But let's talk about these three principles now. Number two, these proven disciple-making principles that Jesus illustrates in this one passage here. Let's apply those proven principles. First of all, be open and honest about ministry. Be open and honest about ministry. The Pharisees... The priests, the religious leaders, were not open and honest. They were hypocritical. They were mask wearers. We need to be open and honest about ministry. People are not perfect. Look at the person sitting next to you. That person is not perfect. By the way, when they look at you, they're looking at an imperfect person too. Did you know that? Husbands and wives, easy, okay? We are imperfect people. We have to be open and honest about that. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the religious leaders, the Levitical group, they were not honest about who they were. They saw themselves as a a hierarchy of order, of, of power, and that was inappropriate. Jesus is trying to show his disciples, be open and honest about that. As we lead people in this process of disciple making, as we lead people to take steps of obedience and as they grow in their walk with Christ, we've got to be open and honest as disciple makers that we're human. Did you know that? Newsflash. The pastor is human. If you doubt that, ask his wife and his kids and his staff and the ministry leadership team. I am human. I'm going to mess up and make mistakes. By the way, so are you. When I bring a person along, I need to do what Jesus did. I need to let them know I'm I'm not perfect. But I also need to prepare them that they're going to run into imperfect people along the way. How many times have, have we seen people excited to serve and jump into ministry and either teach a class or lead a small group and they get hit right away with some imperfect person? who messes things up, who is inconsistent, or maybe they start serving and a person in leadership does something that messes with their brain. I thought that guy was perfect. I thought that lady never did anything wrong. Now I don't think I'm gonna ever follow the Lord again. And they just bail. How many times have we heard of people leaving a church because they saw inconsistencies? 
Now, I'm not, I am not in any way condoning inconsistencies. We need to be as consistent as we can be. But if I show up looking for people to be perfect, I'm going to find imperfections. I'm going to find reasons to say I'm not going back there because just fill in the blank. Be open and honest about ministry. People are not perfect. When I was in seminary, the discussion always went around how long it takes a pastor to really have an effective ministry at a church. In our, in our denomination, the average tenure of a pastor is 18 months. Think about that. There are guys that have been in churches as long as I have, 19 years. There are guys that have been in churches 30, 40 years. So there's some guys way on the other end of that 18 months for it to average out 18 months. But it's 18 months. So everybody talked about that. And I love what one professor said. He said, I, t- I think it takes three years before you can have an effective ministry. And I agree with that. I really do. That, for this reason. This is what that professor said. He said it takes the first year for the pastor to get to know the people. I I believe that. He said it takes the second year for the people to know the pastor, to get to know him. And it takes the third year for both of them to get over it. Yeah. We need to quit evaluating other people with a standard that's higher than the standard we evaluate ourselves. Have you noticed we do that? Second proven principle, don't confuse church work with disciple making. Again, we've already talked about substituting the mechanics for the ministry, but I just want to say it this way. Church work can be exciting. It can be fulfilling because you feel like you're doing something for God. But it can get to the place where church work becomes more important than kingdom work. What is kingdom work? Reaching people for Christ and leading them to be committed followers of Christ. Not just going through the motions week after week after week. How many times in my life have I heard a description of a person? They're a really good church worker. Well, I'm glad for that. But how, how are they doing in their walk with Christ and growing and nurturing and leading others in their walk with Christ? They used to tell us as new pastors, be careful, guys, that you don't fall in love with the work of the Lord instead of the Lord of the work. Be careful that you don't just say, I love being a part of Coastal Oaks Church because. Again, that's all important. I, I know we need that. We need to have that, that, that sense of family and, and support and unity, but it, it's more than that. Are, are you hearing me? It's more than just being a part of this church family. It is having a focus on reaching lost people for Christ. Again, let's don't be efficient like the hospital where we might be organized at doing it. Nine out of 10 churches in America are declining or dying. Nine out of 10. Why? I think because many have just focused on church work and forgotten kingdom work. Jesus gives the disciples a perfect object lesson of a bunch of people who really probably many started out with the right heart attitude, the right motivation. We know they had the right instruction in the Old Testament, but they messed it up and it became all about what they did and their power and their control of that religious organization. Don't confuse that. Number three, letter C. 
Jesus did this so masterfully. Introduce truth slowly and allow time for processing and discovery. Introduce truths from Scripture slowly and allow people time to process it. Kelly made a dump cake this week. You know what a dump cake is? You take a pan and you just dump the stuff in there. That's it. And somebody said, tell me what that is. And that's what she said. You just dump it in there and then you put it in the oven. That, that's the way sometimes we try to lead people in their walk with Christ. We just dump information on them. Just there it is. Take it. Now run with it. Look, look at this passage. First of all, verse 17, they figured out. They connected the dots to what he had said in the Old Testament. Zeal for my house will consume me. But look at verse 22. After he talks about being raised in three days, so when he is raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture, the statement that Jesus had made. It took these guys three years to go back to that moment and say, that's what he meant. They finally finally connected the dots and it clicked. I'm like those guys, it takes me a while to process stuff. We wrongly sometimes have backed up the dump truck of information and just dumped spiritual knowledge on people. Facts about the Bible, about God, about what you ought to be doing. Jesus, Jesus didn't give them everything at once. He didn't dump all the information at once. They would have run. I would have run. I would have said, I am not ready for that. By the way, that's how I came to Christ too. Jesus didn't tell me everything that was in store. He said, Kevin, you need to trust me. And I did, and he's slowly brought me to where I am. And I believe he's slowly taken me to where he wants me to be. Introduce those truths slowly. When I was at seminary, I was trying to get out of there in the, the designated four years. I was a little slow. I am not a student. Um, but I decided one way to kind of get a little ahead of the game was to take a summer term. I don't know, they call them all kinds of different things now, but back then we called it a summer semester, and I took, I think it was the book of Acts in like three and a half weeks. Really? We got into the Greek, we got into the background, we got into the historical, we got into the extra... Uh, literature about the apostolic fathers. We got into all that stuff. And I want you to know I passed those tests, but I didn't learn a thing. I said, I am not going back to this where I get all this information dumped on me at once so I can spit it back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in the, the long process. That's what Jesus did. He didn't take him through the book of Acts in three weeks. It took him three years just to learn what it meant to follow him. That's the way we want to do it. I love the story of the little boy who went to the master jeweler and he wanted to learn how to craft and be an expert in jade. So the master reached in his box and got a piece of jade and handed it to the boy and said, there, have a seat. And the boy just sat there looking at that piece of jade all day. And the end of the day came, he gave it back and he left and came back the next day. He just handed him that same piece of jade and then maybe he might have changed the pieces of jade, but every day that's all he did all day was held a piece of jade. And then one day the master walks over and drops something in his hand. He says, hey, hey, this isn't jade. How did he know that? Because he'd spent all those days looking at the jade, really discovering what it was so that he recognized the counterfeit. Jesus took three years with these guys, walking with them, nurturing them so that they could know what it was to really walk in obedience with him. That's the way we want to make disciples here. Slow and steady. The crockpot method. 
versus the microwave. It's not popular today, is it? To, to wait on something, to wait on anything? That's the way Jesus did it. Let's, let's be disciple makers focused on what Jesus was focused on. When I was 14 years old, a dream came true. I finally saved up enough money to buy a motorcycle that I had my eye on. I had been to the shop. I had, I had done the, I don't know what you used to call it, forky squishy. We'd sit on it and squash the forks down and bounce on them, you know, just sit on the, man, I'm one of these days, I'm going to get me one of those. I got the little glossy thing that, it was a 125 Suzuki yellow, I think they called it a Challenger. It's back in the days when they made lots of enduro bikes before they had a real dirt bike, and that's what I wanted. I took that glossy thing home, and I looked at it every day, kept it in my room. I drooled over that thing. Can hardly wait till I've got enough money I can go and put the down payment on and buy this motorcycle. So I finally bought it and uh, put it in the back of the El Camino, and my dad drove it because I couldn't drive because I was a kid. Took it home and put it in the garage, and there it sat because I couldn't ride it. It wasn't street legal. I didn't have a license, and, and so there it sat in my garage. I could hardly wait. I'd go out there and look at that thing. Just look at it. I'd get up and I'd sit on it. I don't think I ever did this out loud, but in my mind, I could see myself riding that thing. It took me a long time before I could get it out and really ride it like I needed to ride it. And I thought, what a shame for this kid to have this new motorcycle, and all he gets to do is look at it. It wasn't designed to sit in the garage. It was designed to be ridden. And often in our churches, we have this vehicle called the church, and we're not using it for what it's intended to be used for. It's intended to reach people for Christ. It is not about us four and no more. There's a little poem about that, by the way. It's about the people that God has called us to reach. That needs to be our focus. To stop worshiping the motorcycle in the garage and start using it. Let's pray.